Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is Great Big History Podcast. Thank you for joining us. In this episode of our History 101 series, we do the Mongols, the last victory of the nomads. The Mongols are the last of our great nomadic civilizations. We've not gone, gone into the Turks yet. That will be in our 102 class. But they kind of start to factor in. We've talked about them with the Byzantines. There's the Persians. So we've talked about these great nomadic conquests, the Bronze Age collapse, the Huns. The Mongols are the last. The last time nomadic civilization overruns settled civilization. And by 1279, the, no the Mongols, who are a relatively small people on the outer northwestern edge of, of China, will conquer the largest continuous empire in the history of the world. They'll go from the Himalayas to the forests of Russia all the way into Eastern Europe and through the Middle East. So, how does that happen? Well, we start two generations earlier, in 1206. The Mongols are a horse tribe on the edge of China. And they are united by Temujin, who goes by the name Genghis Khan. And they are united. The, we could say the largest empire in the world started for love. Um... Genghis Khan, Temujin, was a member of a smaller tribe who was defeated in battle by a different tribe. And they killed, they do what nomads do, as we talked about. They killed most of the men and carted off the women and carted off the children. And that included Temujin's wife. Well, he resolved to get her back. He rebuilt. He joined another tribe. He he rebuilt his reputation, kind of in a Gatsby, Great Gatsby-esque sort of way, or Gatsby did it in a Temujin sort of way. And then with that that tribe, he stormed against the his enemy, his nemesis tribe, destroyed them, got his wife back, and from there started uniting the other tribes as this great leader. As like Conan. And Conan is clearly kind of a Western base for uh, a Western image of, of Genghis Khan, of Temujin. Um, this is the apex of nomadic horse armies in history. They create the largest continuous land empire in history. How do they do so? With an army that is essentially a modern army in the medieval world. They start with the Khans, who had great charisma. And from Timurjin, we will have his son, Obadai. And then, well, the grandsons will break things up. But uh, the most famous of the grandsons is uh, Kublai Khan, who will conquer southern China. These are men of great charisma, which brings personal loyalty. 
that the Mongol tribes were connected personally to these leaders. That created loyalty. That allowed these great leaders to have effectiveness. Unlike, look at what we've talked about with the with the Rashidun. We've got one, two, three, four major leaders all murdered or and assassinated, right? Look at the Byzantines. The emperor couldn't leave Constantinople without worrying that his generals would betray him. Genghis Khan never had to worry about that. Obadiah doesn't have to worry about that. And that gave their armies uh, uh, immense foundation. Now, it turned out that these men are also great leaders and administrators. And so these armies had an effectiveness that lots of medieval armies just don't have. The second thing is the army and how it's created. First, it's almost all cavalry. They're nomadic horse peoples. They fight on horses. And so they have lancers and archers. Long spears or the bow. Which allows for multiple forms of battle. The lancers, you're able to hit hard, get in fast, hit your infantry. The, the archers allow the Mongols to fight from afar, to feint, to retreat, to attack, to surround, to wear down. So the first thing that this army is able to do is fight in multiple forms of battle. Most armies can't do that in the Middle Ages. The Romans could. Tang China could. But this is beyond that. The civilizations of the Middle Ages have don't necessarily have that effectiveness anymore. Certainly not in Europe. Two, discipline and a general's command. It was a modern army in a medieval age. A Mongolian general, through the use of signals, through the use of flags, could command his army on the battlefield in a way an Assyrian or a Roman general could and that's huge because in if you've ever watched witcher for example or even game of thrones the battle scenes they all fight the same they line up in a big row and this is kind of how agincourt is portrayed as well if you watch henry v uh the kenneth Branagh henry v yet you all line up and what do you do? Oh, oh! It's this is also the battle in um, uh, Avengers in uh, um, the last Avengers movie, where they the 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 famous scene where everyone lines up, boom, 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 and then Captain America gets the hammer, right? Thor's hammer, ah, right? And it's all it's a big line. And what do they do? Charge in one long line. The Witcher, same thing. Um, Calanthe's army charges in one long line. Well, from the moment that the general says charge, from the moment Cap, Captain America begins the battle, says charge, he no longer commands. It's every person for themselves. They have no control over the movement of troops. And that goes down to basically those kind of battles are brutal, slug, slug fests. 
that are basically about numbers. Who can overwhelm who? Because you're not talking tactics. You're certainly not talking strategy. You've given all of that up. You're talking about brutal hand-to-hand fighting as we see in the Avengers. That's not the Mongols. That wasn't the Romans. That wasn't the Assyrians. It wasn't even really the Spartans. Though the Spartans are a weird kind of exception. Of course they're exception. But the idea was a, a Roman general stood in, was in the back so he could see everything. A, a Mongolian general is on a hill overlooking everything and commanding troops to overwhelm, looking for spaces, looking for exploits. If your general is in the hand-to-hand fighting, he's not commanding. She's not commanding. They have no perspective. And so this discipline that the that a Mongolian general could say, sweep to the left, and know that the unit he says to do, go do that, does it, is immensely important in how this army will operate. And it will be able to crush armies that basically fought by the manliness of their troops. That looked for a slug a slugfest. Third is the Mongols are willing to adapt. They're willing to change. They hired native engineers, especially in China. But they'll hire Muslim engineers as well. Why? Because cities put up walls to keep nomads out. We've talked about this in our, like, second class. So the cities of China laughed at the Mongols when the Mongols first showed up. The cities of northern China laughed. (laughs) We have walls. Go ahead, run around. We've seen this before. Whatever. Well, the Mongols went off and hired Chinese engineers. They said, we're going to give you a lot of money, and you're going to help us. Break down those walls. Do you know how to break down those walls? And people said, yeah. And they said, great, we're going to hire you. The Turks, the Ottoman Turks do much the same. The Ottoman Turks hired European gunsmiths to break down the walls of Constantinople. They literally hired fellow Europeans to destroy other Europeans. The Mongols hired Chinese to fight other Chinese. They didn't know how to lay siege to a city. They were nomads. They don't live in cities. So they found Chinese engineers. They paid them well, and they broke down these cities. They were willing to adapt. It gave them the ability to capture cities, which most nomads don't have. We've talked about this in our second. They run around the city. They take the pigs. They take the. They always take the horses. They may kill a couple of guys and take some women if they get their hands on them. But for the most part, they they steal and they leave. Like the locusts in a bug's life. Now, now, the Mongols are able to destroy that city, capture it, kill all those people inside of it. And they're going to do a lot of that. So they have the power of a, the speed and the power of a nomadic army with the technological foresight of a settled people's army. And that's a devastating 
combination, especially in the Middle Ages, but shows they're willing to adapt. What is their form of legitimacy? Terrorism. A straight-out terrorism. This shouldn't be surprising. They took the warfare of the steppe and brought it to cities. So they kill everything. Everyone. Now, there's arguments about whether they really did that or whether it's just Persians uh, making all of this up. You know, all these settled people are universally uh, just making making um, character assassinations of the Chinese. Um, not the Chinese, of the Mongols. Because Chinese, the Chinese literature is the same. The Chinese literature, Indian literature, Muslim literature... Russian literature is all the same. Where the Mongols come, they obliterate. But, you know, I've, I have met scholars who have said, no, no, that's not true. Well, the Huns did the same thing. And they go, well, that's just the Christians making that shit up too. Like, Dude, when everyone agrees on the same story, and you're the one who's saying they're making it up, come, like, come on, check your biases. You know, I know you don't want, I know you're studying the Mongols. I know you don't like them being bad guys, but you know, would you want to be in Samarkand when the Mongols showed up? Let's be honest. You want to take that risk? Because Samarkand had seven golden mosques when the Mongols showed up. Didn't have any when they left. Merv was obliterated. Baghdad is an obliteration of such an extent that it completely changed Islam. We're talking the Romans obliterating Jerusalem type of level of destruction. Kiev, the story of Kiev, is that it was a burned hole 40 years later. It was still a wreck of a city. So they brought the step warfare, the way you fight other nomads. You kill everything, kill everyone, right? Kill the men, take the women, destroy, uh, enslave the children, and they brought it to settled civilization. They poisoned the wells. They ripped up the irrigation of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia went from one of the richest places on earth to not. Like, I don't know how you say the Persians just made that up. The wealth of Mesopotamia dried up. It doesn't recover until oil is discovered. And that's a whole other problem. China is leveled. There are as much as the population declines by as much as 30 million Islamic Central Asia, the Silk Road cities are destroyed. I already mentioned Samarkand. There's Merv and Bukhara. They are all wrecked. Kiev in Russia. Russia isn't supposed to be based in Moscow. It's supposed to be in Kiev. Kiev was the leading medieval city, the leading medieval kingdom. And what happened? The Russians showed up and leveled it in 1240, allowing Moscow to become leader of the Slavs, leader of the Russians, replacing Kiev. 
and Kiev being in Ukraine, don't think that doesn't lead, leave a lot of bad blood, even today, between the Ukrainians and Russian speakers. But it allows Moscow to rise. Because Moscow is further away. Moscow will be visited by the Mongols. Mongols will own Moscow too. But it's kind of just a little too far. A little too far north. But remember, Kiev and Moscow, they're in the forests. They're in the forest zones of Russia. Kiev is more towards the steppe. But it allowed this, the Mongols who are steppe nomads, they need the flat grasslands, are operating in the Russian forests. In the, in the Eastern European forest, just as well as they're doing the Middle Eastern desert. The Chinese highlands. I mean, they are able to fight everywhere. They obliterate the Abbasid Caliphate, the Arab Caliphate. 1258, they level Baghdad. People who weren't killed were exported. They exported the best populations back to Mongolia, back to China. Back to the homeland to use. The lesson they're teaching is it's better to surrender and never revolt. It meant the Mongols didn't have to fight continuously. What they did was you keep a couple people alive, of course. You give them horses. You send them to the next town and say, we're coming. You let them tell people what they did, what the Mongols did to Samarkand. Well, you send them on to Bukhara. Or you send them on to Baghdad. And you say, these guys are coming. And the lesson is, it's better for you to surrender. Don't revolt. Kind of very much the Roman idea. If you surrender and don't revolt, we won't destroy you. If you do, we're going to make a, we're going to destroy you. We're going to make a lesson out of you. Wherever the Mongols went, areas got poor. Russia, the Middle East, China, Central Asia. The Mongols were not an urban people, so they didn't care about cities. They're perfectly happy destroying cities, obliterating the wealth, taking the culture, and exporting it. Now, that will change later, but this is the initial invasions. This is the initial destructions. There's a story and this is apocryphal. This one I'll give the the Mongolian historian that I met. That this is probably not a real story. It's probably apocryphal. But there's a story of either Genghis Kublai Khan being convinced by Chinese bureaucrats not to destroy China, not to level China and murder all the people. Which, to be fair, is you wouldn't have been able to do this too many people. But the idea was to make northern China, north of the Yellow River, into a plain, to just level it so that horses could grow there. And the bureaucrat convinced Genghis Khan to keep these people alive because living Chinese pay more taxes than dead Chinese. Now, you might think that's obvious, but remember, nomads don't pay taxes. They don't have money. So you have to convince them that money and taxes are worth something rather than what is worth something more step to raise your horses. To the nomads, the only thing of value is the food that you're eating at the moment and your horse. 
Everything else is transitory. Money doesn't mean anything. There's nothing to buy. So the Mongols just didn't care about cities. See, urban civilization, you don't destroy the entire population. What the Romans did to Jerusalem, to Carthage, is a crime. They wanted it to be a crime. They wanted it to be an example to everyone else in the world of what we could do. Don't piss us off. But it's against the rules of war of any civilization. You enslave the population, yes. You make them work for you. You pay, have collect them ta collect their taxes. You use them to make your civilization better and richer. If they're dead, they can't do that. You know, plowing Carthage's fields with salt doesn't make Rome better. So in the rules of settled civilization, you tax the people. You create an empire. You make them work for you. So the Mongols are not playing by the rules of civilization, which is okay because they are nomads. You have to meet everyone on their, their level, but people were so scared. The Khorasan Caliph in Central Asia was so frightened of the Mongols he escaped to an island in the middle of the Caspian Sea, figuring horses can't walk on water. He, he is also not the only king that does that, that flees to an island. That's effing terrifying. So I don't know how you, you know, not. I mean, the Mongols wanted you to be afraid of them. So this empire is so huge that it will break up. It's too big. It's, its communications are too long. One guy in Mongolia cannot run it. And so what happens is Genghis Khan can run it. Why? Because people are loyal to him, personally to him. Now he has three sons, and right from the beginning, two of the sons hate each other. It's possible all three sons hated each other, but two the two oldest sons really hated each other. There's a backstory there about who is the more legitimate. The oldest son is is always Genghis Khan always says his eldest son is his. But there's also always a rumor that the eldest son was the was fathered when the mother was in slavery. Because remember, in Mongolia, in nomadic warfare, you kill the men. Okay, Genghis Khan was left for dead. But you kill the men, you take the women, and you marry them off. So she was given to another man. One plus one equals two. Um, so there's always this, but to Genghis Khan's credit, again, we go back to the love part. He never one. He never says. He never admits even the idea that this child is not his, and that is to protect the honor of his wife. So, 
But the second son is like, you're not really my, you're not really my father's, you're my stepbrother. You're not really my brother. Because remember, the eldest son would get the empire, right? And so they are going to fight. And what is decided is we'll give it to the third son, Obadiah. And what Obadiah does is tell his two brothers, go west. One will go into Russia, one will go into the Middle East. Go west. Conquer more territory. Have Build your own empires, basically. The grandsons, on the other hand, and you know this from your own life, aren't very well connected. The grandsons, there are more of them. And they have their own prejudices that they follow their father's prejudices. But also... They don't know each other. They're farther away. How many of you know your cousins real well, especially the ones that are in California or in Wyoming or in Florida? Like, how often? Like, you have more modern technology to talk to. You have Facebook. You have Instagram. You have texting. So you could stay in contact with your cousins. But a lot of people, especially before all of that modern technology, and even now, when you run into your cousins, at somebody's wedding, the birth or early birthdays, like the first birthdays of one of the babies, or the death, especially of grandpa. And I have bet you've been at a funeral of a grandparent, and you've heard people talk and be like, that's not my grandfather. You had a completely different relationship with grandpa than I did. That's a different man. I don't know who you are. And it's that, that very natural, as the generations get farther away from the, the main person, there's less and less personal cohesion that leads the Mongolian Empire to break up. And it breaks up into four large parts. Yuan, China which is the Kublai Khan part, the most famous part, the Golden Horde, which will dominate Russia, the Ukraine, the Crimea, uh, the Northern Steppe. It goes into Europe. It goes into Poland and Hungary for a little while. Um, The Northern Steppe of the Black Sea. There's the White Horde in Central Asia. This is... um, Afghanistan, Bactria. This is the traditional... Um, nomadic routes that connect the the heartland of the steppe to the, the nomadic territories. Um, and then Mongolian Persia. And this is the this is the empire that will become Tamerlane's Timur's empire. So what does this breakup mean? It means war. Because Tamerlane will want to put it all back together again, right? Kublai Khan will want to pull China out of it, separate it. And this leads to the destruction of the Silk Road. So Central Asia gets poor. There's less trade. And it means trade must go by sea. Now, there will be attempts by Kublai Khan, by Yuan China, to recreate the Silk Road, to reconnect it. Tamerlane will obliterate it. So, you know, there are attempts like Marco Polo will cross on these trade routes on the Silk Road 
from Europe to China. He could do it. It's a brief period, but he can get there on land. Columbus, 150 years later, cannot. Henry the Navigator, 100 or so years later, 150 years later, is saying we have to go by ship if we want to get to India and China. Trade must go by sea. The Silk Road no longer does what it needs to do. The other thing is, all of these wars means Mongolian culture is weak. There's not a lot of Mongols. They're not settled. They don't have any of these institutions. Every time they come to a great city, they're blown away by the awesomeness of it. And then they destroy it. But what happens is the Mongols, because they're so spread out, because there's so few of them, unlike Muslims who had Islam to kind of bind them together, even as they were breaking apart, you still had Islam to bind them together, the Mongols begin to convert to these other local cultures. They become Han in China, Buddhist in Central Asia, Islamic in the Middle East, which means there's another thing that separates them from each other. Now, can they ever really be Han in China? No, of course not. And when we talk about um, Yuan China in 102, we'll talk about that. They could become Muslims in the Middle East. And they, they reinvigorate the Turkish tribes, especially in, uh, on the steppe. In Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, in the stands, Kazakhstan, right? So what are the effects? So you have an empire that lasts for a couple of generations and then breaks up into pieces. Those pieces will last longer. Those pieces will also fight each other in devastating wars. So what are our effects? One, China is traumatized. And this increasingly creates a desire for China for the Chinese. To get rid of these invaders, to get rid of these foreigners. And that will bring about the Ming revolts. The Ming are going to revolt against the Mongols. They are going to create, they are going to liberate China from these foreign invaders. But they're also going to create a smaller China, a China for the Chinese. They're not going to want to own, you know, Tibet and um, the far west and the steppes and the northern forest. They create and they, they will build the modern Great Wall to put a border there. The Ming want a China for the Chinese because they're traumatized by these foreigners who have come in, hurt them committed violence into them, and then run them as foreigners. Whether it's Mongols or the Muslims that the Mongols will bring in to work for them. Second is the Arab world is traumatized. We've kind of already talked about this. It becomes more isolated, comes to be conservative, becomes xenophobic, these, this idea of no more ideas, no outside ideas. If it's not in the Quran, I don't need to know it. That the outside world is dangerous. The Arab world is traumatized and it will be 
taken over, it will be fought over by the Turks and the Persians, and it will be eventually taken over by the Turks. The Arab world becomes poor. The Middle East becomes poor. The Silk Road is ripped up. The traditional land routes are destroyed. Marco Polo travels on the Silk Road like we talked about Columbus 200 years later. Henry the Navigator 150 years later after Marco Polo could not. They simply couldn't go by land. It was too destroyed. The infrastructure, the roads, the cities, those stops, the markets were gone. Central Asia became poor. Central Asia is some of the poorest parts of the world today. It's only the finding of oil and gas that has changed that. But these were rich cities from the earliest periods, from Alexander's period, from, per, from Cyrus's period. Central Asia is some of the richest territory in, on earth because of these trade routes. Certainly in the Roman period, when you have an actual Silk Road, and now it's a desert. Global trade had to adapt. It was going to have to go by sea. Here, I'll show you two maps. Here is a map of the traditional trade routes from Western, from Eastern China, excuse me, from Eastern China, over the mountains, across Central Asia, through India, and uh, linking back up over the Himalayas, not over the Himalayas, um, through the Afghan, Afghanistan mountains, the Hindu, Hindu Kush? The mountains in Afghanistan, Samarkand, Merv, you see these cities, through Persia, into the Middle East, Mesopotamia, and all the way to Constantinople. These are traditional trade routes that go from east to west. They exist from before the Han build, build these out, but the Han, at least in the... the um, around the, the turn of the, the Jesus the, by 1 AD, you've got these kind of trade routes that travel from east to west. Look at the Dutch trade routes in 1600, 1650. They don't touch the Middle East at all. They don't touch here. I, I can do this here. This is the trade route. It goes through here. Silk Road, if you're watching the video, I have my little cursor going. All right, it goes through here. And here's here's Baghdad, right? Here's Baghdad right around here, right? Constantinople's up there, right? And it would go through here. The Dutch don't go anywhere near it. So Western China, Central Asia, all of this, all of this that was, you know, rest stops, like I-95, it was all these towns and cities along the way. The civilizations, the Turks, right? The Byzantines and the Turks here, right? The Arabs here, right? Egypt, the Copts, and later the Arabs, right? The Persians here, right? There's no trade. There's no money. They go by sea, right to the source. Central Asia becomes poor.
So if global trade has to adapt, it goes by sea. So who are the losers in this? The Italians, the Middle East, Central Asia, Western China. Why the Italians? Because the Italians are here. To get to China, you have to build ships that can sail in the Mediterranean, and then the ocean, and then you got to go around Africa, and then you got to go to India. It's the ge geography which allowed Italy to hook up with the Middle East real easy is actually a detriment to oceanic trade. The new winners, the Atlantic Kingdom, the Atlantic Coast Kingdoms, if they want to, Portugal, Spain, France, England, if they want to, and it's not clear in 1450 who could, who would, who would want to, who has the money. Portugal has the ability if they want, but it's relatively a poor country. Can it invest the money in the ships? But it's got security. Spain is still finding the Reconquista, kicking them, kicking the Muslim kingdoms out of Spain. So they don't have the time or the money. France is in the middle of wars with England and its own occasional civil wars. So, and it's got wars going on with Germany. And in Italy. What about England? England's a mess. This is the War of the Roses. This is there's no one in charge. And England is poor. Of of the four countries I mentioned, they're probably the poorest. Certainly the biggest mess. And so and they're kind of the farthest away. So the question is, will a Western European country pick up those trade routes? What is the effect on Japan? Well, in 1281, so we went west, now we're going back east. In 1281, 100,000 Mongols, 50,000 Chinese, 20,000 Koreans invaded with a Chinese fleet. A typhoon struck while the Mongols were on the beachhead. There was nowhere really large. The Mongols, in a way, brought too big of an army. They're kind of the, the, the problem of the Persians invading Greece. There was nowhere large enough for them to land. And so a typhoon struck, destroyed the, the fleet, sent what was the wreckage that was left back to the Chinese mainland. This is the original kamikaze. There will be a second one, but this is the original divine wind, the kamikaze. What this did was scare Japan and convince Japanese elite, Japanese leaders, that Korea and the sea must be controlled and or subdued. That the invasion came from Korea and that you must control Korea, otherwise Japan can be invaded again. The Kyushu lords won. They gained independence from the central government. Why? Because they could um, defend the local territories. In some ways, we'll see this in the next episode with what the French lords do against the Vikings. The central government couldn't be everywhere protecting Japan at all times. And so basically the lords, the Kyushu lords said, I'll do it. I'm, I'll defend my territory. And increasingly that my went from little, little letters to capital letters. My territory.
And so Japan will eventually break up into feudalism. Buddhism becomes stronger. It got credit for the kamikaze storms. And so Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, is going to take hold in Japan. There's also the feeling that Yuan China, Kublai Khan's China, is clearly superior. They're bigger. Like, look at the army they put together. They're richer. They're more advanced. They put this navy together. And so, how do you, how does one deal with a bear? Like, how does one deal with someone who is much bigger than you right next door? And so there's piracy in some parts. Japanese pirates are going to be famous. In my History 150, the answer to ever, almost all questions pre- 20th century is Japanese pirates. What problem plagued Korean king? Japanese pirates. What problem plagued Chinese emperors? Japanese pirates. If it's a problem for somebody else, or who helped bring in money into Japan? Uh, Japanese pirates. Japanese pirates are going to be famous, kind of like the, the Western pirates of the Caribbean. But also, pirates can't do everything. And so there's also a trade. They're going to open up trade with China and learning from China. They're going to bring in um, measured amounts, but things that will help Japan keep up at least and not fall further behind. There's also the feeling that Japan is chosen. It's a protected place. But it has to get its act together. Like this was the great warning. That if you don't change, if you don't catch up, you are going to be conquered by China, by the Mongols. So you better get your act together. Japan is special, but also you could lose it. You can mess it up. What about Korea? Well, in 1231, it's invaded by the Mongol horde, led by Obadai. That's the son of, um, the third son of King Khan. Korea is occupied and it's conquered. The Koreans begin guerrilla warfare, you know, hit and run tactics. And the Mongols respond as you would expect the Mongols to with brutal reprisals. This lasts basically until the 1270s when Kublai Khan invades and destroys southern China. That's the Song Dynasty. See, the the Korean armies, the Korean government could fight a guerrilla war because their ally, Song, China, was still existing. Half of China, the Chinese emperor, half of China still was independent until the 1270s. So you had an ally. You could get weapons. You could bring in advisors. You could get money. You had outside support. That's going to end when Kublai Khan destroys Song, the Song China, Song Dynasty. When he invades, comes over the river, and invades southern China without any of that help, the kind of guerrilla war just kind of dries up. Korea was forced to pay for the invasions of Japan. 
200,000 Korean slaves were carted off to China and Mongolia. Their cities were ruined by siege and by guerrilla warfare. Confucianism increases and Buddhism decreases. Confucianism increases because it's enforced. It's brought in by Yuan officials. The Yuan like it because it encourages loyalty. Buddhism decreases because it's failed. The Mongols have conquered. The Mongols have won. And so there's, okay, there's a look for other alternative belief systems. The Yuan elite, which is Mongolian and then Mongolian Chinese elite, will marry Korean women. So again, Korea is incorporated into the, the Chinese political and elite sphere. So the Mongolian and Mongolian Chinese uh, elite will bring in Koreans. So you have a linkage between elite Mongols, Chinese, and Korean uh, families. That's good. Because it brings, it's good for the Mongols, it's good for the Yuan, it brings Korea, it, it, it ties Korea more tightly, despite all the destruction, it ties Korea more tightly to China and the Mongols. But it's also seen as a local, by the local nobility as a humiliation. Why? It's, well, whenever your women are marrying foreigners, it's seen as humiliation. It's, we're not elite enough. They're marrying, they're going to other places. They're finding other men, other kingdoms. The other problem for the for Korea is it's too far from the Silk Road. Too far north, too far east. And so even when the Yuan dynasty tried to rebuild the Silk Road for a little while, Korea doesn't benefit from that. And so you poverty and there's no money to recover. And so it becomes even more dependent and tied to Chinese wealth and trade and protection. This is kind of a low point in Korean history, this period. And so that's where we will end. Thank you very much. Be safe. Be careful.